Welcome back! It's the ATB Pod. I'm your host, Chandler Adams. It's been a while. Hope you guys have been good. We're back today with Brendan Leister, PFF analyst, covers the Cleveland Browns. We've got a lot of things to talk about. We got to talk about Freddie and that this disappointing season. But brighter skies ahead. We got to talk about the coaching candidates and who's a real, real contender to get that head coaching spot. What will the personnel, GM, grouping look like with those spots? And finally, what the Browns need to do this offseason and draft season to get this team into that contention that we all hoped and prayed for last year. But right after this break, me, John Kaufman, also known as Cleveland Spider on Twitter, and Brendan Leister are going to break this down for you. You do not want to miss it. Please go and download this video. It helps us so much. Share it. Tell your friends and family. Love you all. See you right after this break. This podcast is also brought to you by Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is so easy to use. It's simple, it's fast, it's effective. It's the easiest way to distribute your podcast to every major platform and in the quickest way. I've gone through other websites to host podcasts, and it's a pain in the butt. Anchor does it for you. Join Anchor.fm and do your podcast the right way. And if you're looking to start a podcast, contact one of us at ATV Sports as we're looking for podcasters for nearly every professional sports team right now. If you think you'd be a good fit, you can also apply at our website, www.atbsports.net. All right, so the moment you guys have all been waiting for, the Browns yearly head coach, GM search. No, I'm kidding. But here's the thing. you got If, if it's not going well, things aren't going right, it's better to bite the bullet. Hey, I screwed up. Let's look. Let's look again. Let's get it right. And uh, I think the Browns are taking it much more serious this year. The amount of candidates this year that they have are tenfold of what they had last year. And I, you know, I just think we all need to relax and hope that Haslam doesn't meddle, like do the Jerry Jones thing. Let his team run it. We'll see what they get, but. Without further ado, we have PFF analyst Brendan Leister. Uh, he's here to join us, talk about the Browns. Uh, last year, what went wrong, candidates for the head coaching search and GM spots, uh, what the Browns need to do in the future, and all that good stuff. Brendan, thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm uh, just excited to talk a little bit of Browns football and get into this uh, search a little bit. Great. We're at, uh, we need some hope in the Cleveland world, so hopefully you can provide some of that for us. But uh, the biggest thing, the first thing I want to ask you, and picking to the analytical side of it especially, is, you know, the Browns had a lot of expectations this year. I, I didn't see the, you know, the cockiness that people said, you know, the Browns had preseason. I looked, went back over the interviews. They were pretty humble for the most part, in my opinion, but that might be a little bit of bias, but you know, what did you guys see at PFF and you just see with your own eyes, like this offense, was it schematics? Was it personnel? Was it, you know, maybe the assistance that the players work with on a day-to-day basis or just lack of leadership? What did you see on the field this year? Or actually, what did you not see in the six and 10 record? 
Yeah, as far as the offense, um, I think there was overall like a lack of attention to detail. Um, just to start off, like you noticed a lot of times players wouldn't know where to line up coming out of the huddle. They would have to ask the quarterback or ask the guy next to him. A lot of times, especially early in the season, you'd see Landry telling other guys where to get lined up, what route to run, <coughs> especially when Callaway was in there. Um, you know, early in the year, because he was actually playing a lot when he came back from that suspension. And then a little bit throughout the year with OBJ, too. Um, and then also I would I would say that another thing that stood out was, uh, you know, the play calls would get in late. So there wasn't a ton of shifts and motions. A lot of the best offenses around the NFL run, they do a lot of shifting and motioning. And that gives a quarterback a tell on if the defense is playing man, man or zone a lot of times. So that can kind of make you know, the job of the offensive players easier because they can pick up on little things that the defense is doing just based on using a shift or a motion. Um, if the play call gets in late or the guys get lined up late, that doesn't really allow you to do a lot of that. Um, another thing that stood out to me is just I thought, you know, Mayfield, honestly, studying their offense and studying other offenses around the NFL, I would consider him to be, um, I don't put it all on him at all. I think that, you know, the quarterback coach situation was like they made a really questionable hire going with Ryan Lindley. Um, he was a GA, a college GA a couple of years ago. Um, and then they hired him. When Kitchens got promoted to OC in 2018, midway through the season, he brought on Lindley as the new running backs coach to replace him. And then he hired him as the quarterbacks coach in the offseason. Looking back, that was a really questionable hire because – you know, he doesn't have that experience level that I think that you need if you're going to, you know, groom a young, talented quarterback in the NFL. Would have made more sense to him being more of an assistant quarterback coach role probably at this point in his experience level. Um, so what what I saw from Mayfield a lot was, you know, he'd get really deep in his drops, like a lot of times like 11 or 12 yards deep, like I was saying. And that's very – that's something you don't see from like a lot of offenses at that level. I mean, even if you study – you know, study NFL, college, high school offenses, you don't see quarterbacks getting to 11 or 12 yards deep, getting beyond 12, 10 yards. And that results in the quarterback being pretty unprotectable on their dropback passes to where, you know, offensive tackles are setting at a certain depth. They expect the quarterback to be at eight yards usually. And now all of a sudden the quarterback's at 10, 11, 12. Edge rushers can just run right by the tackles, forces the quarterback up in the pocket or he gets sacked, sacked. And then everybody's looking at the offensive line thinking it's their fault when really it's because the quarterback's not at the right launch point. So that's just that's one of the big things that stood out to me. Um, I thought throughout the year Mayfield, you know, he looked like he didn't really know what side of the field he should be reading on certain dropback, you know, uh, certain dropback concepts that they would run where he would – you know, you'd look at the route concept on film and it looks like, you know, a progression read where he would be reading like a full field, you know, looking from like right and then scanning to the middle of the field and then to the left. Sometimes it looked like he would look at the backside of the concept at the top of his drop, which just doesn't make any sense. It would be covered and then he would have to, you know, hold the ball, take off, whatever. But it just didn't work out. Just overall, I thought that there was just an extreme lack of attention to detail on that side of the ball specifically. Yeah. I think that I don't disagree with anything you said there. Um, John, I'm sorry, buddy. If you have anything to say about that, we can come back there in a minute, but no, I no, just, I, no worries. Okay. I think this is uh, twofold. 
one, I don't want to dwell on a bad season too much. Uh, obviously, we can sprinkle it in every now and again if it seems relevant. But something that seemed uh, that po- stood out to me was that you said um, knowing the quarterback's launch point. And when I watched that Vikings game on Sunday, now everyone on Twitter knows that I'm very biased towards Stefanski. Now, I don't know if he'll be a good head coach. I just love the way his offense moves the ball. I think, uh, you know, you look at their weapons on offense and it translates – quite well to the Browns, two stud receivers, a good running back, uh, an accurate quarterback. I, What I see is the Kirk Cousins um, looks uh, – what's the word? Not Like he is protected, but he looks confident and comfortable in the pocket. And it's almost like the defense doesn't know exactly where the ball is going. But you watch the Browns this year, Baker Mayfield looked like he was a freshman playing against varsity, uh, scared, wasn't well protected. But um, – it almost seemed like the defense knew exactly where he was going. Is that uh, – so going off of that, um, Steph- Kevin Stefanski, the offensive coordinator of the Vikings, is a potential candidate. I think he's interviewing Thursday for the Browns head coaching vacancy. Do you think that a guy like Stefanski can come in, bring his offense in, and that would help Baker get back to that accurate, well-mechanic quarterback we saw in Oklahoma in year one of the NFL? Yeah, I, I think there's a chance of that. I mean, when I look at these head coach candidates, you know, I'm, folk, I'm trying to trying to just piece together the little I can about, you know, their background and their leadership style and all those other things, you know, accountability, being able to build a great staff. I think those things matter a lot more with the head coach. But, but I do feel that his offense suits the Browns really well. Um, when Mayfield was coming out of college, I thought that if he would go to a scheme like Shanahan's, where he could do a lot of boots, get on the edge of the defense, um, all that stuff. <clears throat> I think, you know, moving the launch point around, giving him a lot of like deep, deep pockets by design because it's all off that outside zone. So then, you know, the rush is kind of like they have to play run first. Like they just have to or they're going to get gashed. And then it, it creates a lot of big, like, open pockets for the quarterback where they have a lot of room to throw and I think that suits Mayfield really well and we've seen even this year like when he is sure of himself at the top of his drop he is a very accurate passer when he has problems is when he doesn't know exactly what he's looking at and his mechanics aren't tight um you know he just that's where he kind of loses it so yeah I think that offense is a good fit for him I think it's a really good fit for Chubb because he runs outside zone really well I mean he obviously runs a lot of concepts well but I think that's one that he specifically does well and um yeah with the usage of OBJ and also um and also Landry I think they fit into the spots pretty well if you study their offense like fits into the roles that they have for Diggs and Thielen pretty well um actually going through their offense I was I was really taken aback by how similar the usage between Thielen and Landry could potentially be um, with just the the many roles that they use him in between, you know, playing outside in the slot, bringing him in to block linebackers and safeties and defensive ends at times with certain run schemes, even using him in the backfield at times, just with different, you know, kind of like little uh, wrinkles that they use and window dressing and stuff. Just they use him really creatively, and I could see Stefanski doing that with Landry as well. So, yeah, I like the fit from the offensive football standpoint. I just hope that. Stefanski has all those those other things that you want in a head coach. Yeah, I uh, that's that's the biggest thing that it's just it's hard to know. Uh, obviously, for a guy that hasn't been a head coach, but 
Uh, yeah, sorry, there's a lot of ums. John, what do you think about – what are your thoughts on the Stefanski? Well, <clears throat> I think my um, – I guess my first question for Brendan would be, what if what if he came over but he didn't bring uh, Kubiak with him? Do you think that would, like, make you nervous, like, just right off the bat? Would you just be like, ooh, I don't know if this guy can – like, if, if that – if having a run game coordinator was such an important part of them being successful in Minnesota, you know, is that – a necessity? Do they have to come as a package then? No, I don't think so. Because I mean, if if that was the case, there's no way that you would hire him in the first place. And it also sounds like he did a fantastic job in the interview process last year. Like they, if they would have trusted the process last year, he would have been their head coach going into this past season. So they clearly view him as a very good candidate based on how he interviewed last year. And then we kind of saw it all come into fruition this year, just watching their offense. I understand that Kubiak has, you know, he has a say in that, but I think if you read articles and look into kind of the way the Stefanski's managed things as an offensive coordinator, I think it's encouraging because it seems like he, he's a smart enough guy to understand that he needs a great offensive staff with him. And that's, you know, that's a huge piece of being a great head coach is hiring a great staff and maintaining it over time. It seems like he doesn't have an ego like some guys do where he's going to use the guys under him, whoever they are. He's smart enough to ask Kubiak for advice because he's been there before. He's been a head coach. He's been a play caller, OC for a long time. I mean, he's got he's ran, he's had so many roles and that's what Stefanski wants to be. So I'm sure I'm sure he's constantly picking his brain on not only schematic stuff and game planning and all that stuff, but also how to be a good coach, how to be a good leader, you know, just motivating guys. I'm sure that he's probably picked Kubiak's brain on that stuff too, just knowing that he's a head coaching candidate now. Teams are interested in him. So that doesn't concern me too much. I mean, ideal world, it would be cool if he could bring Kubiak because Kubiak is such an experienced guy. And like I said, it's just his track record is fantastic. But um, I don't really see Kubiak taking an OC role um at this stage just from what i've what i've gathered it seems like he's more interested in being in more of the advisory role the you know the overall kind of just more of more of a consulting role on the staff but still being a part of the day-to-day operations i don't think he wants to be a part of that grind that it takes to be an oc but no it doesn't concern me too much um because really he wouldn't have been a great head coaching candidate in the first place if you felt like he needed to bring someone with him yeah if that makes sense no it does that's good and i think that a lot of um i I maybe i don't know about a lot of people but i think that's one of the things that came up in uh you know our circles of friends and family talking about after kitchens got fired you know the possibilities stefanski um you know he's already you know a candidate last year like you said and um you know just like is that you know is that a crutch like do we how much do we really know you know is is he really designing things or is it really you know the two of them together and without one you know without kubiak he would fall apart and it seems unlikely but i'm just glad that you know that's you kind of see it the same way um you know just wasn't sure but um so, yeah i'll add another thing I'm oh yeah add another th- so so it's not i don't think stefanski views it as his, his offense and i know that we heard this from kitchens this year and you know, so it's something that you can sometimes take with a grain of salt, but I think that he really means it. Like Stefanski is not a Shanahan Kubiak disciple, so to speak. Like that's not what he came in, came up in. Mm-hmm. He's been on a bunch of different coaching staffs over the years. And I think that he, he just seems like the type of coach that's willing to 
adapt his offensive system to who the coaches are under him. What like he like an example of this that I think it's important for people to know is like I read an article where it talked about how there was you know other coaches on the staff and they all had this certain language that they were using as uh, you know as the offensive staff because all different offenses have different languages and uh, Stefanski the offense that he you know I guess his playbook so to speak had a different offense but because he recognized that if if he changed so if he used his offensive playbooks terminology I guess that's the way to put it then all the other coaches on his staff would have had to learn that terminology so instead of adjusting his terminology or instead of making them learn a new terminology he adjusted his own playbooks terminology to adapt to them so he was the one that had to learn what everybody else calls the stuff or whatever so that that's an example i think of a coach delegating not having an ego taking the ideas of people under you and i think it kind of shows that he's gonna want to i think he's gonna want to hire like a great offensive staff and rely on those guys and you know, work with them. Like I could see him being a head coach that doesn't necessarily call plays. You know, he might want to, he might not, but I could see him being a guy that doesn't. So that is, uh, it brings me to, um, it was, uh, um, Jake Burns's podcast, the, uh, the Browns film breakdown podcast that you were on what about a week mm-hmm. ago, a couple days ago. Yeah. Um, so which, Anybody out there, if you're not following Jake Burns and listening to his stuff, you're just doing yourself a disservice because he's fantastic. So that's first and foremost. Um, but on the podcast, you talked about how Stefanski on, you know, Tuesday mornings um, would, you know, look at other teams from around the league and see what their offenses were doing and try to make yeah. sure that he was, you know, reviewing everything and staying current <clears throat> and, you know, maybe, you know, picking up pieces from other offenses, incorporating things like that, like, to me, between what you just said about delegating, um, you know, maybe not even wanting to call his own plays, you know, changing the uh, him learning new lingo as opposed to making everybody else, that it seems like those are two pieces of evidence that make him basically diametrically opposed to Freddie Kitchens. It seemed like Freddie Kitchens all year was incapable of learning or adjusting anything. And what we saw in week 17 you know, the mistakes, the errors, there was the exact same stuff that we saw in week one, um, you know, no difference. And so to mm-hmm. me, this already seems like, you know, a guy that's just light years better as a possible candidate. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, you know, if you listen to him speak, he's a very um, articulate, intelligent guy. I mean, he's he went to Penn. He's an Ivy League guy. Not that that means, you know, it doesn't mean – that a guy's automatically intelligent, but I think that with him it does, if you just listen to him speak. And it's easy to see how he would interview extremely well. Um, yeah, very different from Kitchens. Kitchens clearly, you know, Parcells, old school. Just look at the way that he handled training camp. <laughs> I mean, I don't see that happening again. I, I brought it up week one when they lost to the Titans that, you know, I was a little bit concerned during camp with the way that he was going full pads all the time and just beating the heck out of the players and they had all these all these guys on the injury report, like week one and week two, and people were coming at me like, oh, that's not the reason that they're hurt. That's not the reason. Well, players are saying now they've come out and told media members and, you know, texted them because these media members talk to the players and ask them stuff. Like that was one of the issues they had with Kitchens was he did a very poor job of load management. 
and they started the season all banged up, and that's that's a reason why. I don't see Stefanski being a guy like that. He's not old school. I think he's very adaptable, very aware of where the go where the game is going, and and I also wonder how much Zimmer impacts them being a very run heavy team on early downs, because he seems like a guy that would be, um, not saying that run heavy is a terrible thing, but I think like you see that his numbers on second and long. He runs more often than you'd like to see yeah. in the modern NFL because running on second and long is not a good move. If you just look right. at the numbers, it should be really be more of a pass down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder how much Zimmer has a say in that, honestly, because Zimmer seems like a very, very controlling guy. He has his hands on everything, which is okay. It's his team. He runs it that way, and he's got himself in the divisional round of the playoffs. But I do wonder, once Stefanski's leading the ship, what his uh, play calling or offensive philosophy is going to look like. Cause you know, we only have, what is it? So 17 games this year, they have 20 games to go off of with, with him as a play caller. And and he, uh, he got to that position because Zimmer came right out and th- they fired John Filippo. They just said, yep. we, you are calling way too many passes. I do not want to run, you know, that many pass play. Like we have to run the ball. You can't be here anymore. And they, right. It basically came out and said it. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like he Zimmer is a guy that's like, look, I, I liked what I saw from 1967 NFL football, and we're just going to keep doing that, and that's it. So, yeah, and yeah. I and I do think that it's important to make this distinction also that the thing with John D. Filippo is he's very drop back pass heavy, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of moving the pocket like I mentioned earlier. There's not a lot of distinction between it. Like you watch the Shanahan offense or the Kubiak offense, you know, there's a lot of teams running it now. The Titans run it. The Packers. Vikings, San Francisco, there's there's others too. Like they move the pocket a lot. They get the quarterback out on half boots, you know, full on boots. They sprint them out sometimes. They do quick game. They play under center a lot, so the quarterback's turning their back to the defense. Like D. Filippo is a very just, you know, you line up and you're either running a few run concepts or you're just doing straight drop back passes. And I think that that makes it really easy to like tee off on the quarterback at times. You have to be a lot more creative with how you, mm. how you pass the ball in the NFL I to see. have success. And I think that is the issue that people have with Filippo because I know that Browns players couldn't stand John Filippo after going from Kyle Shanahan the year before. And it was because wow. it's so drop back pass heavy. Like you can pass 35 times in the Shanahan offense but what do those 35 passes consist of? It's it's not going to be 30 dropbacks. I guarantee that. It's going to be a mix of a bunch of different types of passes. And honestly, I think that was an issue with the Browns offense this year too is it was a lot of just dropback passes. It wasn't a lot of creativity with the different types of pass attempts that they were getting Mayfield, and that made his job harder. Okay. So, um, and that's an important distinction to make. So thank you for bringing that up about Filippo because I think that most people don't, you know, if you're not, if you don't study the NFL like you do, I think, you, you know, I think things can look really similar to you. And if you're, you know, to the untrained eye. So that's I appreciate you making that distinction. Um, the last thing about we don't have to talk about kitchens anymore. But the last thing I definitely want to bring up real fast is um, after he got fired, you know, I have the text group of friends and family and stuff like that. And um, my buddy, John Boy, he texted. Uh, he said, this is what bad organizations do. They fire coaches after one year. And I personally, in a vacuum, I, I think he's right. Or I understand at least where he's coming from. It does make a lot of sense um, that that just seems like a terrible thing to do. But to me, this situation, you know, not looking at things in a generalized way, you know, specifically looking at Freddie Kitchens, it, 
Do you think that keeping him around would simply have just been subscribing to the sunk cost fallacy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it would have been a that would have been a train wreck with the way that the you know the players felt about him at that point. And oh man, that that would have been a very bad situation um, if they would have kept him. I think you know just the results kind of just made it a situation where they absolutely had to fire him at that point. And, and really, I feel the same way about John Dorsey. And I understand that someone would say that about you know hire, firing a coach after one year. But I, I honestly think that it should probably happen more often because teams, if they realize that they made a mistake, it's better to admit that mistake early than to sit around hoping that he turns it around, just hoping and praying, and then you end up firing him in the middle of 2020, and then it's another wasted season. And then you know you miss out on more candidates that you could have had this year. Like Just putting it off another year would have been insane, especially with the situation that they're in right now with Mayfield's contract situation and some of these other young, talented players that they're going to have to have some tough – they're going to have some tough decisions on some of these guys. So they absolutely have to have a successful 2020 and rolling it back again with a GM that has no regard for character and, you know, that tells the head coach who to play on game day and all these different things as well as – the head coach being who he is and having the staff that he had. And who knows if he would have been willing to make some of the firings that he needed to make. I mean, I felt that the D.C. needed to go, the quarterback's coach, based on the results, and and probably some others too. So who knows if he was going to be willing to do that. I mean, those are tough decisions, firing guys that you brought in a year earlier. So, yeah, firing those two, clean slate, letting Deep Podesta help help Haslam with this coaching search and doing it right for, I would say, probably the first time, honestly, where you hire the head coach and GM together, let them, you know, be tied at the hip and work together for a long time and make sure you hire people that are going to collaborate together and are on the same page. I mean, that's doing it the right way. And it's good to see the Browns finally doing that because they didn't do it the entire tenure of Haslam up until this point. So that is, okay, and that is perfectly stated. Um, Since he took ownership halfway through the 2012 season, like, I don't think it's even remotely in question that Jimmy Haslam is the biggest problem, you know, in the organization. And Mm -hmm. part of that is simply because he's the only constant, right? I mean, he's firing coaches every other season, and, you know, these guys are in and out and regimes, and, you know, the GMs are changing hands and everything like that, but... Like to, I think that's the other part that maybe if, if you, you know, if you're annoyed that, that Kitchens got fired and then Dorsey left, like if you're sitting around going, same old Browns, same old Browns, you know, the fact that they're sitting down and saying, okay, look, we need to hire a head coach and then we need to hire a GM. And those guys have to be on the same page because we're not doing this. Head coach runs to the owner's office and says, I want to trade for AJ McCarron. And the GM's like, no, we're not doing that. And it's behind closed doors and they're fighting with each other. I mean, like he Haslam can't play the parent, you know, breaking up the two brothers who won't stop fighting um, amongst themselves in the organization. And that, to me, at least, I mean, you know, I don't know if he's learning from his mistakes, but this feels like from a procedural standpoint, from a process standpoint, this feels correct. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree 100%. I think I think he's learned somewhat from his mistakes, but I think he's also lucky to have one of, I mean, some people have called him one of the smartest people in sports, you know, as the 
chief strategy officer. I mean, having Paul DePodesta in the organization, that was that was a great hire by him. And and Haslam has hired smart people in the organization over time. I mean, they make a big analytics hire, it seems like, every year where there's a big name that people recognize that comes into the organization to work in the analytics department. It's a shame that those people have been ignored the past few years, but still, I mean, that's he's hired smart people in the organization over time. It's just he needs to make the right hires at the two most important spots with the head coach and the GM. But, yeah, I think he's really, like, he's really lucky also that Deep Podesta didn't leave over all these years because he's been ignored on two coaching searches now, and it absolutely can't happen a third time. If if we see that they hire a coach and then the next day it says Paul Deep Podesta's contract expired, he's leaving the organization, and then someone with, with you know, sources close to the situation says, oh, Paul D. Podesta didn't support this hire. His guy was actually this guy, but Haslam went rogue again. I mean, that absolutely can't happen this time. So they they have to knock this out. They have to – people have to be on the same page. I think really it, whatever D. Podesta says, hey, this is the guy I think that we should go with based on what we set out to find at the beginning of the search, that is who Haslam needs to go with. Hmm. Well said. Yeah, I uh, I do agree – that they have had a lot of um, big name, good analytic people come into the building, but they've been ignored, and it's honestly a it's a miracle right now that Depodesta hasn't left. I hope, I'm praying that they just listen to him one time. I mean, he's been right in the past. It's, he's proven. Just let him do his thing. Uh, but another candidate that seems to be the heavy favorite among Browns fans, and I quite honestly don't really see why. It's not that I don't think he'll be a good head coach, but his track record as a head coach wasn't great. I mean, granted, he was, I think, 33 years old or 30-something years old. He's very young. But Josh McDaniels, uh, currently the New England Patriots offensive coordinator, the thing that I don't like the most about Josh McDaniels is – the potential GM candidate that I've seen rumored that he would come with, um, Patriots personnel. The Patriots have done a pretty poor job of drafting in the early rounds. Um, And I know this might seem pretty small, but the Browns have the number 10 pick, which a, a number 10 pick can help your team right away. It's supposed to help your team instantly. That's something that worries me a lot. Um, they've done great in the later rounds, developing players. But, yeah, what what are your thoughts on Josh McDaniels and what he can do for I, – I, he's a big Baker fan, so it would be good for him. But what he can do to this team. Yeah, um, so I have questions about Josh McDaniels, and it mostly stems from, you know, what we saw in Denver. Because, you know, we talk about these guys as question marks – but I think that with him, I mean, it's less of a question mark because we already saw him do this. And I know <laughs> that the question that really, really the key question is, did he change? Did he grow up? Did he become an adult? Because what he did in Denver from all the people, you know, that have come out, the media people, the people that worked for the organization, everyone close to the situation has just said that he basically just acted like a child. He, uh, you know, every little bit of power that he was given, he was always trying to take more. He didn't treat people the right way. 
He basically hated all the head coach tasks that he had. So he just wanted to sit in his office 24-7 and watch film and, you know, do all the OC stuff that he's used to doing in the past. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that that is a huge question mark. I'm sure, like, you know, people talk about Tebow, like drafting Tebow, and that, that, was, his, that was his pick, that was his decision. But that's not something that would concern me. I'm sure that he learned from that. And, you know, I'm sure that that, he views that as a mistake that he wouldn't make again, but I'm much more concerned with the leadership things. And if he really learned from that experience, if he's really changed, because like my view, like I'm, I'm not 33, I'm only 26. I'm about to turn 27 in a couple months. I guarantee you, if I was put in a position to be a head coach of a high school football team, you know, cause I coach high school and that's just the level I'm at. I wouldn't act like a, a child with dealing with administrators and the AD and you know, the coaching staff, just, just, that's just me talking. And, um, I think if we look at these other candidates, it's clear that they're not going to act like children. At least if we just look at like Stefanski, for example, and Robert Sala, in my opinion, those two guys would not act, act that way. Um, so it's, it's odd to me that people just assume that he's changed over these past 10 years when he's already kind of shown us who he is. And then the details of the Colts thing, you know, those haven't really came out with, they haven't been confirmed in any way, but it's still crazy that he left the coaching staff, you know, that it was already put together and kind of just let them, left them at the altar in, in Indianapolis. And some of those coaches, I think even ended up on Reich's staff. They might've left after a year, but they still stayed in Indy. Um, I just have questions about him. I mean, uh, like, yeah, offensive football wise, X's and O's scheme, all that stuff, you know, coaching Baker Mayfield. Yeah. That all sounds awesome. But I hope that he's changed. I hope that he's grown. I hope that he's, yeah, just grown up, to put it simply. And I hope that he's willing to collaborate with people and be open-minded. Because, like, I could see him having an issue with Deep Podesta still being a part of the organization. Well, that tells me that the person's insecure if they have an issue with that. I mean, you shouldn't have an issue with a really smart person working in the organization. I could see him saying, oh... I think DePodesta is going to be, you know, he's going to say to Jimmy, hey, we need to fire the coach because he's doing this wrong and we need to fire the GM because he's doing this wrong. I don't, I mean, DePodesta is not that type of person in reality. He would only speak up and say those things if things were really horrible. But, I mean, to work with a guy that's that smart, I think that most people that are secure in themselves and don't have huge egos would love to work with a person that's as smart as Paul DePodesta. So, and would love to learn from him on a daily basis and work with the people he's hired. So if that's an issue, that's a huge red flag for me, just as someone that could potentially be, you know, hiring a coach or whatever, like that's a huge red flag if he's not willing to work with those people in the organization. So um, that's kind of my feel for it. My take on it. I, I hope that he has grown I don't, I mean, I don't know the guy. People say that he has grown. Other people say that they can't imagine him growing up and really changing that much from how bad it was in Denver. So we'll see. And then as far as uh, Dave, I think his name's Dave Ziegler. Um, as far as him, I mean, you know, they were friends in college. I think they worked together in Denver. Ziegler's with the Patriots. Um, as far as like the draft picks and stuff like that, I think a lot of those decisions are mostly just made by Belichick. You know, he brings in people that he wants to coach in the organization. So it's hard to say how much authority and control that 
people that work in that front office really have when it comes to that aside from just scouting. So I don't know what types of players the guy would draft, but my hope is just that they can work collaboratively with the smart people they already have in the building and you know, leave their egos at the door and understand that it doesn't have to be the Patriot way. You know, like that was, I think, how they put it in Denver, that he wanted everything to be the Patriot way all the time. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be an authoritarian dictatorship. It can be a, you know, a collaborative deal where people are leaving their egos at the door and working together for the betterment of the Browns and the long term of the team. So are there, um, besides Ziegler, Ziegler, are there any other names that might be connected with, um, uh, you know, attached to um, McDaniels as a possible GM? I haven't heard anything. Um, I know that people, like early in the process, they mentioned Nick Casario. Mm-hmm. I think that was out there just because they were assuming, I think people were assuming for a while that Houston might fire Bill O'Brien and they were thinking that maybe McDaniels and Casario might go there or or they were thinking Casario might leave to go work with Bill O'Brien in, in Houston. But I don't think Casario is going to leave at this point. Um, I could be wrong about that. I don't really have sources on the situation, but I'm just reading the tea leaves and what people are putting out there. Um, other than that, there's no obvious names. I think the way the Browns are handling this search is they're going to hire a head coach and then they're going to they have probably like 10 names and i'm assuming that those names of gm candidates probably <coughs> probably have relationships with the candidates that they're choosing from and then they're going to probably interview a few of those guys and then they'll come to a collaborative decision i'm sure that the head coach will have plenty of say in that but i don't think it's just going to be a situation where the you know like i said it's not going to be a dictatorship the head coach isn't going to just come in and say hey this is my college buddy he's our he's the gm like that's that's not the way this is going to work in my opinion and and if they hire someone that tries to do that like that might not have been the right decision so that's kind of just my feel for it that sounds like um again it, it just the situation you're describing sounds like an organization that, well, frankly, it has not been the Browns for forever. You know, every time we've gone through this as fans, you know, you, you're just scratching your head going, what, what the hell are they, like, how are they going to make this decision? And why are they doing it in this order? And why isn't everybody on the same page? You know, just a million different reasons why, you know, it seems like it's going to fail before it ever even starts. And at least this year, like you said, you know, just the, 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 uh, the process, the way they're doing it, the way they're going about it. Um, you know, that's, I don't know. I'm encouraged. That's for sure as a Browns fan. So hopefully other people out there, are, you know, hearing you say these things and are starting to lift their spirits a little bit. That's for sure. Um, so are there, um, are there any head coaching candidates that have been floated around that you have just kind of wrinkled your nose at and thought, Ooh, I don't know about like that. Like you have way more questions. I mean, no, I know we have questions about McDaniels and other guys, you know, but anybody that names got, you know, their name got thrown out and you were just like, uh, hard pass. Thanks. I don't think I would ever go hard pass because I don't think we have enough of the information on, on the candidates to like feel that way. But I will say with Greg Roman, like, I wonder how many of how many of those traits that I think we mentioned early in the podcast, like the leadership and all those different things that a head coach needs. I wonder how much he has of that rather than just having the great schematics and the X's and O's and the, you know, the play calling and the game planning and all the things that an OC needs to be great at. 
I wonder how much of the head coach things he really has. That's that's kind of just my question about him. And also the fact that he's done it with primarily mobile quarterbacks. Like I'm not saying he can't do it with a, po- a primarily pocket passer, but um, like I think all the evidence kind of shows that like he's an OC through and through. He's been great at it. I wonder why it took this long for him to get really many uh, head coach interviews. So he's just a guy that I wonder, I wonder if he really has the stuff to be a head coach or if he's more of just a lifelong OC, but I could be wrong about him. I really don't have enough information about these candidates to make strong, strong judgments on them. Um, Okay. Yeah. Um, Other than that, the one that I definitely have, like I, like I alluded to the one that I definitely have the most questions about is McDaniels because he's already been a head coach and we've seen it kind of go off the rails so that sometimes I think the unknown is a good thing because there's potential for good. Whereas just knowing what the, what the guy did in the past can be more of a, uh, you know, more of a deterrent. So the other name that um, has been tossed around that I don't even know if it's really serious or anything like that. It's probably mostly just, you know, the, 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 the fan of, you know, the, the Browns fan, who was also a Buckeye fan, you know, instantly was, hey, Urban Meyer, Urban Meyer, let's get Urban Meyer to coach the Browns. And I am of the opinion that that would be an unmitigated disaster. Um, and I'm just curious uh, about what you think. If, if he ended up popping up as a real serious candidate, let's say it was down to him and, you know, I don't know, uh, whoever, it doesn't matter. What would you what would you think of that? Um. I think he's helping the team on a consulting basis, first of all. I think that's what he was doing with the Redskins also. I think he's trying to help teams find head coaches. But if that was was actually going to pop up, um, I just don't think he can handle the grind. I mean, he showed showed us two times that he just can't handle the grind over time. Like, you know, he's a head coach at Florida, then he has the health issues. Head coach at Ohio State, health issues. I mean, he wouldn't have to worry about the NCAA anymore, so that would be a huge deal for him. Um, I think that he would hire – I don't know what type of staff he would hire. I mean, what kind of contacts does he have around the NFL? I guarantee you can't just hire a college staff. It's not like he's going to pillage a bunch of guys from Ohio State. I mean, he built a fantastic college coaching staff at Ohio State, but those guys are all college coaches primarily. The only one that he hired that was an NFL coach – I think when he was there was Bill Davis, and he failed miserably as a linebackers coach from what I remember. Um, I think that's his name at least. So I don't know. I don't feel uh, – I think he's a great leader. He do. He might do great things for the culture potentially, but I just – I really wonder about the type of staff he'd put together and, and really the longevity factor. I mean, you'd almost have to have a succession plan in place and then – if you don't have a succession plan in place, then you're right back at square one in a few years when he starts to have the heart problems again. So, yeah, I just – I don't see that at all. Um, but it's a good question. I mean, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, and I don't I, – like I said, I don't think it's really serious. I don't know if – you know, I haven't really heard anything other than maybe, you know, fan musings and speculation. But just just curious, that's all, to see if you – what you thought about that. So I do think there's one other candidate – I didn't know if you were going to ask, but I do think there's one other candidate that has a – decent chance of being the Browns guy if you wanted me to talk about him at all so that was going to be my next question was anybody okay. that we maybe haven't heard you know touched on yeah I think Robert Sala I think he has a chance I think um what I heard he interviewed really well and they expected him to and I remember early 
I'm losing track of time since the season ended, but I guess early last week, I think Charles Robinson, who's been all over the situation, he's been all over the past two coaching searches with, with the sources. He clearly has a source close to the situation on this. And um, he works for Yahoo Sports. And he said on his podcast last week that he kind of glossed over it, but he seemed to say that Sala, he thought might be De Podesta's second choice, just going into the search, that it might be Stefanski Sala. And uh, Robert Sala, I mean, his background makes him look like a really open-minded, forward-thinking kind of guy. I mean, clearly a great motivator. Players love to play for him. Seems like the guy that would command respect to the locker room. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really positive attributes it seems like he has projecting forward as a head coach. Um, Some people might take this with a grain of salt, but I personally don't. The fact that Kyle Shanahan hired him to be his defensive coordinator. I don't think Kyle Shanahan would just hire any old coach to be his defensive coordinator. Um, I know that people could say this about like Belichick and McDaniels, but they have a relationship that goes way back. You know, people could say to refute my point, they could say, oh, well, Belichick, you know, he hired McDaniels to be his OC. Well, Belichick's very involved with all aspects of the team. They already have Tom Brady. And also that's not, I mean, clearly Belichick is in charge of that situation in New England. Um, it's not like McDaniels is the head coach of the offense. I guess that's what I'm getting at. As far as Sala, I think he he's pretty in control of the defense there from what it seems like. You know, Shanahan calls plays on offense. He's a glorified, you know, he, he does the head coach tasks very well, but he is still like the OC of the team at the same time. So I don't think he would have hired just anybody to run his defense. And from what I gathered about the hiring process, I guess Sala knocked it out of the park when he interviewed with, with Kyle Shanahan. He already had the whole offseason planned out and everything. Um, has an interesting background from, you know, people can do their own research, but like he was working in finance when 9-11 happened and his brother was in the World Trade Center at the time. And like his brother ended up surviving, but that was like Sala's wake-up call that he wanted to go coach in the NFL. So then he went and found a GA position and went, you know, bounced around college football a little bit and then ended up in the NFL in a a, a quality control position, which kind of lends itself to analytics because he's been there before, like being the person charting all the tendencies and you know, working his way up because because co- players like to see that guys that have grinded their way up if they didn't play in the NFL. Um, so Sala, he's someone that's intriguing to me. And then just talking about, I think a couple GM candidates. So I thought this was interesting that the day that he interviewed on Saturday, um, reporters started talking about a couple execs from the Seahawks and connecting the dots I mean Sala was with the Seahawks for a while um he was a I think he was the linebackers coach there under like Pete Carroll and Gus Bradley and and then um the head coach in in Atlanta as well when he was the DC there I'm forgetting his name on top Bradley? of my head uh not Gus Bradley but the guy that's the head coach for the Falcons right now Oh, Dan Quinn Dan Quinn yeah Dan Quinn right he coached under both those guys okay um but yeah, so I think he has some, you know, he knows some of the execs in Seattle, and I think that's why the names came out in the media. So it would be, I think, Scott Fitterer is an example of a guy that might be a GM candidate if he gets the job, and also Trent Kirchner. So those guys are they're the co-directors of player personnel in Seattle. So they're probably like two of the top guys in the 
in the personnel department besides the GM, you know, working under John Schneider. And uh, I think Fitterer is a little bit more of a college guy. Like he's kind of like the college, the director of college scouting. And then Kirstner is more of the director of pro scouting. So I think either of those guys might be a candidate to come with solid a Cleveland as a GM if he were to get the job. And I mean, solid. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I thought somewhat highly of him before um, just, you know, the, learning about him the last couple of weeks, but I would, all that, what you just shared, that's incredible. I mean, this, he really seems, I mean, I'd hire him based on your recommendation right now. So that sounds, that all sounds really good. Um, hey John, I, I just want to intervene one thing with yeah. the solid thing. So I saw something the other day, a, a tweet, so I looked into it. Solo was with the Seahawks during the Legion of Boom and the Jaguars, I believe, during their run, but I know it was during mm-hmm. the Jaguars' years of that excellent defense. Now, everywhere he's been, he's had great defensive players there. But just the fact alone that you were with one of the best defenses in NFL history in Seattle, then – the best defense in the league in Jacksonville. Now you go to the 49ers, and there was a report that the defensive line coach was uh, a big reason for their success. But, you know, that I I think – I look at that, and I see that as like smoke, just throwing smoke out there so that people aren't trying to get solo because you don't just go to three of the best defenses by chance. I think some of that has to do with maybe the energy, the focus, the um, – the, everything he brings out of the players, the greatness he uh, demands them to have. So I, I just thought that was interesting that he just happened to be on three of the best defenses we've seen in the recent, um, you know, since 2000, three of the best defenses in the NFL. And yeah, it's, I, I don't know. Everything that you read about him or listen to him talk, you just fall more for the guy like, oh, crap. Now it's always like, I, there's nothing I've read or heard about him that's made me pull farther away from him. Yeah, yeah. I think um, like people have pushed back a little bit on on him, like as a head coach candidate, because they've said, "Oh, the defense wasn't good until this year. They had to really bolster the personnel and get Nick Bosa and all this stuff." But <clears throat> I don't think you could find a single defensive coordinator that's good that has bad football players like mm-hmm. like show me show me good football players and I'll show you a good coach like mm-hmm. as someone who coaches like if I have bad quarterbacks yeah I look like a bad quarterbacks coach all of a sudden like yeah. I, I get kind of tired of this year after year where people are like oh well they rank this and this and this and this like you know at the end of the day it comes down to if he can lead if he can motivate if he can build a great staff like for him you know, this, this was a great point that like I was talking to my friend earlier about, you know, the Browns head coaching search. And he mentioned, you know, if they hire Sala and he, he was like, yes, yeah, Sala seems like a great fit, but for him, the key is hiring a great OC. I agree hundred percent. He's got to hire a fantastic offensive coordinator. That's going to be a huge key for him. Um, it would be interesting to me if Kyle Shanahan would allow one of his co-offensive coordinators, or not co-offensive coordinators, but one of his, so he has a run game coordinator and a pass game coordinator. His run game coordinator is Mike McDaniel, who is the wide receivers coach as well. And you never see that because you usually see running backs coaches and offensive line coaches get the run game coordinator title. You never, 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 I've never seen it before, see a wide receivers coach 
get a run game coordinator title. That tells you that Mike McDaniel has an extremely detailed understanding of offensive football. He understands all the intricacies of the pass game, the wide receiver play, as well as intricacies of the run game. I think that Kyle Shanahan, um, or I just, I'll just talk about also the pass game coordinator. So the pass game coordinator, I believe he coaches quarterbacks as well, is Mike LaFleur, obviously Matt LaFleur's brother. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike tried to leave to go coach with his brother last year in Green Bay, or at least, at least Matt wanted to hire him. But Kyle declined that interview because he wasn't – I think the reason – this is just me assuming. I'm assuming I might be wrong. I think that he declined it because he's not going to get to call plays. I feel like he might want – if those guys are going to move up to the next level and become an OC and go somewhere else you know, and potentially coach against him, I feel like he's going to want those guys to really be taking a step up. I mean, right now they're like – they're like co-coordinators that don't get to call plays. So why would he let them leave to go somewhere else to be just a coordinator that doesn't call plays? That doesn't make a lot of sense when you're developing assistant coaches, preparing them to you know, become head coaches someday and move up, up the ladder. It does make sense, in my opinion, for Shanahan to let one of those two guys leave to go call plays somewhere because that is them taking a step forward in their development as assistant coaches. So I could see maybe one of those two guys. I lean a little bit more toward Mike McDaniel because it seems like he has a full understanding of, you know, it's just it just shows. I mean, you can tell from his title and also just from hearing like what Andrew Hawkins said about him that he learned more from Mike McDaniel in one year of playing for him because he was the wide receivers coach in Cleveland in 2014. He said he learned more in that one year playing for Mike McDaniel than he learned in the rest of his football career combined. I mean, that is a huge compliment about an assistant coach. Um, so I could see maybe him coming with Sala to be the OC potentially. That That is just something that I've been wondering about for a while. And you know, it's hard to say if that would actually happen, if Shanahan would decline it again and just say, hey, you guys aren't leaving until you're head coaches. But I think it's it's an interesting thing to think about and consider because Sala will definitely need to bring a good good OC with him and a good staff. I mean, all head coaches need to hire good staffs. So yeah. from a um, – let's kind of talk about that and then – but um, in a generalized way. So let's say, you know, someone like Sala was going to come and be the uh, the Browns head coach. Um, now he's a defensive coach, obviously. So mm-hmm. let's say that he'll be the head coach, but he's also going to largely coordinate the defense still. And, and they'll let's say they hire a defensive coordinator, but we know basically – you know, Robert Sala is running, you know, the Browns defense as well as being the head coach. Um, do you think that, you know, the opposite was true this year where Freddie Kitchens was the head coach, but he was also dealing with the offense. Do you think that it's um, maybe easier on a first time head coach, especially if he is of a defensive, you know, has a defensive background and even if he's going to, you know, retain control of the defense, do you think that it's just easier from a setup standpoint for an NFL team to let someone else run the offense who has no head coaching responsibilities? Um, as far as calling a side of the ball, I think that that presents challenges, whether they're on offense or defense. So if Sala was going to come in and call the defense, I mean, that obviously presents challenges, you know, when, when they're on defense and, want to manage timeouts and all that stuff it's you know it just presents challenges but I do think like what you're saying 
to be able to just sit back and like manage the game while your OC calls the offense because a lot of times you're trying to manage those timeouts and manage the clock while your team is on offense more so than on defense. I think, yeah, it takes a really, I would just put it as special. I think it takes a really special, unique individual that's really, really gifted to be able to manage a football game, be the head coach all at the same time and be aware of all the different things that are going on on a game day that need to need to take place and that you need to be aware of to win a game as well as calling plays at the same time. I think it takes a really, really talented individual to do that. You know, the Shanahan's, the Andy Reid's, the, the Sean Payton's. I mean, there's other guys too that do it, but it's, yeah, it's hard to do that. So, you know, what you're saying might have a little bit of credence. I, I would say that calling the, calling a side of the ball brings challenges either way, no matter who the head coach is. Um, it's hard to say if Sala would still want to call the defense or not. It, I mean, I'm sure that the Browns know that. Just they probably know as soon as they meet with the guys. You know, they might not, they might even know going into the interviews if they're planning on calling their side of the ball or if they're gonna hire someone else to do it. But yeah, presents challenges. Takes um takes a unique individual to do it. But I mean, it can be done. And and it and I'm never gonna be the guy that say, oh, stop hiring coaches that call the offense and and you know are the head coach or stop hiring coaches that manage the defense and are the head coach like I think that's like that's just a really poor way to look at it because some guys can handle it and some guys over time can't and you hope that you hire a guy that doesn't have that ego so that they realize hey I can't do both right now I'm just gonna sit back and you know let my coordinator do their job delegate trust them because you hired them to to that position for a reason you know that takes that takes uh, selflessness and that takes self-awareness and, and hopefully they hire a person that has that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never seen any, you know, data on that or anything like that. So it's, you know, really anecdotal. I mean, just, just thinking about it as a, as a, you know, if I were Jimmy Haslam and I have to set up a team in a, you know, a certain way, I, I just, if I'm real, I guess maybe it would be a tiebreaker. You know, if I really like two candidates, but I know that, you know, and I know that they're going to want to run, you know, their side of the ball, wherever they came from. I, I probably would lean towards hiring the defensive guy as the head coach because I just want I, I want the offense to be so focused on just that, that the other guy can just, you know, manage the game and, and get the, you know, timeouts called in a correct way and challenges, you know, challenged and, you know, when they need to be and when they don't need to be. I mean, knowing mm-hmm. when to challenge a play and when not to is it's huge. I mean, we saw it in the yep. New England game when they, I mean, the refs blew it, obviously, but um, what's it called? When they had to uh, waste that challenge on the fumble return and then they, you know, on the, the Nikhil Harry touchdown later, they didn't have a challenge left over. And I mean, I guess that's a bad example because they had to do it. But the point is, is that, you know, knowing when and not to, you know, when to, when to call a timeout, when not to call a timeout, when to let the play clock expire and just take the penalty on fourth down and punt it. And, you know, just little things like that. It just felt like it, it, I don't know if Freddie Kitchens would have been, I don't know. I don't know if he wouldn't have been overwhelmed had someone else called the plays or something else. I, I just, I feel like he was just a terrible coach regardless. And I don't mean to bring him back up again, mm-hmm. but I the agree. point is, is that to me, it just seems like lightening the load, you know, of a first time guy, especially it, it just, it's huge. Like how, you know, making life easier and that's the trickle down effect right like the owner needs to make things easier for the guy you know the the for de podesta right and de podesta needs to make it easier for the gm and then so on and so and like kitchens was 
you know, like you said, clearly not making it easier on any of his players. And so, you know, it just this stuff is so hard to get right if everything is perfect. And then to make things harder just because of the way you have it set up, the way you structured it from the start, it was your choice to do it. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's something to consider, you know, having a, a guy like Salah yeah. because of that. But um, but yeah, the Mike McDaniel one, too. I'm glad you brought that up because that was another one that you talked about on um, on uh, the Browns film breakdown pod that I thought was really interesting. Um, him being a wide receiver coach. So um, I'm glad you touched on that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um yeah, anything else you guys want to get into? Yeah, well, I, have... I think the oh, – okay. oh, yeah. Well, actually, I'll mention one more GM candidate just really quick because we didn't even talk about him. Just Andrew Barry because, oh, you know, yeah. he's been with the Browns organization in the past. Um, he left for the Eagles last year when they didn't hire um, – when they hired Kitchens, I think he knew it was going to fail. I think he just had a good feeling about that or a bad feeling, so to speak, and um, – I think he preferred Stefanski and Flores, so he ended up leaving. But anyway, the Browns supposedly have interest in bringing him back as the GM. <clears throat> and uh, I think that would – one way that it would benefit the team to have him back is because, I mean, we shouldn't see this regardless of who they hire, but we definitely won't see, I think, the churning of players – for no good reason, like we saw under Dorsey, where he was just getting rid of pretty much everybody that was on the team before he was there, just just because he didn't bring them in, and it's basically just an ego thing, where he wants the entire roster outside of Miles Garrett, Joel Batonio, and J.C. Treader to be all guys that he brought into the team, from what it seems like. Thankfully, if they bring in Barry, I don't think we would see more of that. He would get rid of some of the players, because some of them are bad, and some of them are not good people, but... Generally, I don't think he would just get rid of them mindlessly for the reason that he didn't bring them in. We wouldn't see that ego trip again. Um, and also, he just seems like a really bright guy that you know is able to mesh scouting, decision making, analytics, you know, adapting what you bring into the like having an understanding of what the coaches want to do and adapting what you bring into the building for that. Um, I think that he seems like he has a good good grasp on all that, and that's what people, you know, he has a good reputation around the NFL. So I think that's a candidate that we could see with, I don't think with McDaniels necessarily because they just don't seem like, he seems like a guy that wants someone that's familiar to him, but I could see it maybe with, maybe with Sala. Um, and then, you know, there's been rumors that Stefanski and him have a, have a, rapport together and they obviously met during the interview process last year so uh that's just something to keep an eye on hmm. uh, my last question for you is um let's say the browns hire uh you know whatever head coach and whatever gm and um it ends up being let, wh whoever that's going to be let's just say it's the right call okay they get the head coach right uh the head coach brings in you know, an OC and a DC and um, these things seem like good fits and things like that. Um, and the GM is someone that they all can work with together and things like that. It's, it's harmonious in the front office all the way down to the coaching staff. Is this, is this roster? I mean, you, you obviously, you know, you're, you work for PFF, you analyze this, this team. Is this roster close to competing? Like, are we a, a solid head coach slash GM regime away from being a, a you know, a strongly competitive team in the AFC North and then the AFC overall? I think they have a chance to be. Um, 
I think that something that needs to happen is this coaching staff has to get more out of certain players on the team. I mean, we saw certain guys take a step back under this past coaching staff. Um, Some examples of that, you know, Denzel Ward kind of had an up and down year. I thought as, as the season went on, I felt really good about how he was playing and once he finally got healthy, but we saw him take a little bit of a step back. We saw Larry, Larry Ogunjobi took a huge step back. I mean, he was average at best his second year. Um, I would have even considered him slightly subpar, honestly, when you look at just nose tackles around the NFL based on that year. But I think this year he was, I would just put it bad. Um, there was a few flashes here and there that get people excited, but down to down, he just wasn't a very good player. So they definitely need to get more out of him and upgrade that position as well, in my opinion. I don't think he should just be handed a starting job again. Um, I mean, we saw Miles Garrett out there just, like he was doing a good job as a rusher, definitely. I mean, his pass rush grade, I think, was the highest in the NFL when he went out. But I'll say that his run defense, I think, left a lot to, to be desired. It seemed to me like he was just chasing sacks, you know, like trying to get a sack every play, sometimes running upfield on run plays where he shouldn't be, which le- leads to big seams in the defense. Um, Schobert was up and down, maybe a little bit more than he was the year before. So, yeah, I mean, you need – what you need, and there's other examples of this too. Demarius Randall wasn't quite as good as he was the year before, and clearly wasn't focused at all times uh, in what was a contract year. You know, people expected him to take a step forward in his second year as an NFL safety, and he took a slight step backward. Um, but the overall point is they need to get more out of the players on the roster, and especially on the defensive side of the ball is what I think of. Um, but on offense, too, as I alluded to earlier, it just it has to be more organized on offense. And I think defensively, they just have to have more attention to detail across the board. But to answer your question, I think the roster is close. I think there's a few positions that they definitely have needs at that they are going to have to address in free agency trades and in the draft. Yeah. So okay. uh, I did have a question with you about – And I can get into some of that if you want me to also. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had – 25 minutes to talk about that real quick yeah yep. yeah I can, sounds good awesome okay so with the free agency there are oh there's quite a few big name defensive players out there um and then some lower names but some uh, this is a situation that's not really probably very likely to happen but maybe with new management um especially deep Podesta running it, maybe he'll look into it. Because John Dorsey made a lot of just power moves, just ego moves. I want this guy. I want him now. And Olivier, Olivier Vernon, he is phenomenal. And people don't give him enough credit when he's on the field. But the problem is the man can't stay on the field. And $15 million is a lot to pay to someone who's not playing 85% of your snaps at a high rate. I mean, that's just but good teams can't pay contracts like that he obviously has no dead cap so you know i was looking at free agents and stuff and there's guys like uh the yannick i can't pronounce his last name so i'm not gonna Ngakwe. try yeah, Ngakwe. from uh jacksonville uh there's interior guys like chris jones from kansas city because larry Ogunjobi, i love the guy but he's just been not good and you play the ravens twice a year you kind of want to build your team to beat your opponents I don't know. There's a lot to take into it. But, you know, if you cut an Olivier Vernon, you can, you know, maybe pay 
for Chris Jones, uh, Chris Harris Jr., cornerback, uh, Yannick Nguakwe. But the problem is you still have to keep the contracts of Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward if he performs better and stays on the field, and Baker Mayfield and Nick Chubb. All these guys you have to look into the future for. Have you maybe looked into, you know, a couple guys they could spend money on free agency, keeping in mind the year, the, like, how, the length of the contract to stay in terms with your young guys that you're going to have to pay eventually? It's a great question. Um, I honestly haven't got into, you know, the guys that are going to be in free agency a ton, especially with the season just ending and the playoffs still going on. Um, That's fine. I just haven't really got into that a ton yet. But I will say that I think um, – I like Olivier Vernon, personally. Uh, I like his game a lot. I, I agree with you that he has to stay healthy. I think finding depth behind he and Miles Garrett needs to be a priority. Um, Chad Thomas is not good. There's no evidence that he is good. I mean, hey, he had a good game reaching... against the Dolphins. Yeah, he did. He played well against the Dolphins, and, and that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's... It's really exciting that he played well against the Dolphins. I just I hope that they can get the Dolphins on the schedule 16 times next year. That that would be ideal. Oh um, but they'd probably lose to him honestly with Flores coaching yeah. his ass off. But but anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan of Olivier Vernon, and they definitely need depth. I don't think it, I don't think they're in a position where they would cut him. Um, I mean, you never know with with the new GM taking over and stuff. But I think. Spending a ton of cap space, which it's going to take if they were going to sign someone like Yannick Ngakwe. Um, I don't see moves like that really taking place. I think we're going to see more uh, more responsible, um, more cautious moves in free agency where they're going to try to get value deals on guys that, that can start but not pay a ton to. Um, I think at nose tackle, I think – I'll just say up front that I think re-signing Joe Schobert should be a priority because I think that he is plenty good enough at middle linebacker. I don't think that he's going to like break the bank for you based on his play. Um, but it just creates another hole if you let him leave. And then I think you're in a position where you need two veteran linebackers. Um, and I know that people are high on Mac Wilson, but I am not. And I think there's, you know, that's another situation where, like he played well in the Arizona game, but you look at all the other games and he really down to down he did not play well. It's another it's another thing it's another situation similar to Ogan Joby where people see the flashes, people see the big hits, and they go, Oh, good player, but they miss all the bad run fits, all the times where he doesn't cover a guy in underneath coverage. Um, you know, some of the missed tackles. There's just a lot of little things that he didn't do well and they all compound and add up to a player just being pretty bad down to down I know that he was a fifth round pick so you can't expect expect him to just be able to come in and start but I'm not willing to hand that guy a starting job on a team that has playoff aspirations so I think a new will linebacker at least someone that's a veteran has leadership that can come in and compete to start and and I'll say again that Christian Kirksey I do not feel you know for one you can't trust him to stay on the field for two he hasn't played well since, I think, 2015. So, you know, you just go by his past and also the fact that you can get out of that contract by cutting him. And I think that's something the Browns have to do this offseason. But anyway, signing a veteran there, maybe signing a veteran safety also to compete with, you know, Redwine and Burris, who's two young players that I think showed some good things this year. They have a chance moving forward to 
you know, be key contributors on the defense. But I think you you need to bring in more safety. You need to bring in maybe a veteran depth defensive end. Um, hopefully they can do it a little better than they did when they signed Chris Smith. Um, I think I think they misevaluated him when he was a free agent, honestly. But that's kind of beside the point. Um, and uh, yeah, a nose tackle to come in and compete with Ogunjobi or or take that spot. Um, offensive side of the ball, I think. Offensive tackle, <clears throat> um, tight end might be a position they look at in free agency, but that, I mean, we'll see. They have a lot of names in the tight end group, but I don't know. It's hard to say how they're going to feel about them, honestly. I mean, if Barry comes back, maybe he would be a little bit higher on some of the guys like like Najoku, for example. But, um, yeah, that's kind of my feel for it. I think they have a lot more needs on defense than they do on offense, but they do have some positions on offense they have to address as well. Yeah, absolutely. Something that uh, I, I can foresee being a real possibility when it comes draft day is uh, they're sitting at 10, and, you know, maybe Andrew Thomas and Tristan Wirfs, um, you know, two guys that are outstanding and have seem to be on the top of most people's boards. Um, you know, maybe they're gone, and a player like C.D. Lamb is sitting there at 10, uh, likely the best player available. Uh, I see a lot of – I see a lot of it where fans get really upset because it's not a tackle, it's not a safety, it's not a linebacker. But it's C.D. Lamb. Uh, he's he's put on one of the most spectacular receiving careers in college that we've seen. I forget the stat, but I saw well, it was actually through PFF YouTube video the amount of broken tackles he's had and uh, the no no sorry that was. Uh, that was the Colorado kid. Uh, with C.D. Lamb, it was that he averages like 10 yards after catch for the entire year of his career or something. Like, just stuff that has been unheard of. Um, you know, at 10, if the Browns just simply went and got another receiver, which they might not need another elite receiver, what would your, like, initial reaction be if the Browns got a C.D. Lamb at 10, I guess is my question. That was really long-winded, but. No, it's fine. Um, I think – if they drafted like CD Lamb, that that would be interesting. I mean, I think that they have a huge need at, you know, like their third receiver spot right now. They need they need someone. I'd like to see them. Sorry, that's my dogs. <laughs> it's fine. Hey. I'd like to see them re-sign Higgins if they can. Um but it's it'll be interesting to see if that relationship can be repaired. Um and then they have Hodge and they have Ratley. So uh you know, yeah. So bringing in a wide receiver that's as talented as C.D. Lamb would make sense um, from a need standpoint, but I I don't know if that really impacts and moves the needle like enough for the long term of the team, just considering the age mm. of Landry and OBJ. Um, so I don't know if I could see that happening, but if they did it, I'd be like, oh, you know, they got obviously a new really talented weapon, and they better know how to use them. Well, let me let's put it this way. Uh, and uh, this is obviously a contrived. We'll call it a contrived trichotomy. Um, if if you if Brendan Leister is the GM of the Browns and you're sitting there at ten, and you have to choose between let's say C.D. Lamb and Isaiah Simmons and Grant Delpit, like what what do you would you lean towards the defensive guys? And if so, which one? I think I would. And what, with what I know at this point, I'm really intrigued by Isaiah Simmons. Um, he seems kind of like a 
kind of like a Derwin James type player where you can just use him in a lot of roles. I haven't really dug into studying him a ton because I haven't gotten into like draft study um, too much yet, but he does intrigue me as a talent. I think the big thing with him is people, some people call him a linebacker. Some people call him a safety. Um, that can be a little bit concerning because you want to make sure that you have a plan for a guy like that in the organization. You want to make sure that you have a DC that like, like your DC or if it's a defensive head coach, they absolutely must have a plan for that guy and how they're going to use him and a role and a fit and ideas for how, you know, how to use him within the defense because you don't want that player to get lost trying to learn three or four different roles. You want them to make sure you want to make sure that they're comfortable, they know what they're doing and so that they can play fast on game day. But his talent is really intriguing to me as someone that can play as a deep safety, come down in the box. <laughs> cover slot, slot slot receivers tight ends and stuff like that he he's kind of seems like a guy like uh, minka fitzpatrick where if minka gets on the wrong team and they don't know where to line him up it's a disaster and you're just like wow what a big bust you know minka was and then you're thinking well wait a minute i remember watching him in alabama and he was unbelievable like he there was nothing he seemed like he couldn't there's nothing he couldn't do you know from a defensive standpoint and you know, obviously he, he got to Pittsburgh and he's just, you know, he looked incredible, um, which of course, because it's the Steelers, but, um, but yeah, like Simmons kind of seems similar, like that, like you're saying, you know, if, if he ends up on the right team and they know how to use him, you know, they just don't, they don't like guys, they're just not made like that. Like you can't, every team doesn't have an Isaiah Simmons on their roster going, okay, you know, we can do, you know, six different things with him because he's so versatile. Yeah, definitely. And I think that explosive game-changing talent on defense is a huge priority right now. Um, I, I also think that, like, for me to make that decision, you know, you said I'm GM, I would be privy to a lot of the character stuff at that point. Mm. And that would be extremely important to me, just knowing that I'm bringing in the right type of people into the locker room. Um, I really want to make sure that I hit on that when I talk about what they can do in free agency trades in the draft because that is a huge priority for the Browns this year is to make sure they're getting the right type of people in the organization, especially on the defensive side of the ball because I think that last year it really showed like one of their huge issues was they just didn't have any leaders really um, or any vocal leaders on the defensive side of the ball, especially as the season went on. Kirksey got hurt. Um you want guys that are playing well and are also great leaders, and the Browns need more of that. Yeah, I mean, especially since you know you could be walking into the 2020 season. I mean, you're going to be facing uh, the Baltimore Ravens twice a year with Lamar Jackson. Let's say Roethlisberger's you know healthy and healed, and he's going to have another you know season, maybe two. Um, I mean, if they can. You know, they obviously we've seen that they. I mean, they've had obviously Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell and you know big name players and stuff. But I mean, Roethlisberger is obviously an incredible quarterback. So you know, almost anybody, if maybe Juju, they fix that, and that's that's a real threat on offense. Um, you know, if James Conner could stay healthy, but and then I mean, if Burrow is, you know, I, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not ready to speculate on his career, but let's say he just is good, um, which I think all signs point to that's not unlikely. Um, you know, Cincinnati's getting back uh, the, what is it, Jonah Williams, the lineman that got hurt in the beginning. Yep. So they, it's like they have a free first-round pick. They got a guy coming back. Um, 
Mixon the last two years has been one of the best running backs in the AFC, and they don't they haven't they can't block a lick for him. So I mean you're you're in a division that's you could have three like pretty solid teams, and you are you know you have one for sure. And if the other you know two things bounce the right way for the other two, you know you could be um, you could be a good team and finish fourth in that division, and it wouldn't be any you know no shame. So I think the um, you know focusing on a defensive you know playmaker like you say who's also a leader just it makes it it's, makes way too much sense. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, another position like I was talking about offensive tackle earlier. I think right guard's another spot where they could stand to add you know another player there, whether it's a veteran or or a rookie to come in and compete with um, with Wyatt Teller, or maybe even just take that spot and run with it if it's a good enough you know veteran or or even a rookie. But yeah, right guard, offensive tackle. Nose tackle, will linebacker. Mike might be a need if they let Schobert go, which just scares me. But I mean, we'll see with Taki Taki. I mean, I'm assuming that they would let him step into that role all of a sudden. But that, you know, you just don't know what you're getting with a player that didn't play a ton. I thought that he looked good at times at Sam, but they are different roles. And, um, you know, there's some, some projection there. And then as well as safety, nickel, I think, is a need for them too. Mm-hmm. Um, because Carey's going to be gone, they can get out of that contract, and you can always you can never have enough corners. So I'll just say nickel and corner because you can just never have enough depth there. I think that's kind of where it is, and also depth defensive end and third wide receiver position. But I will reiterate: if they get really good coaches in there, they should be able to develop some of these young players, and bring out the best in them, and all of a sudden you're going to have some guys come out of nowhere or play a lot better than people expected and uh you know and that that decreases the number of needs that you thought that you had sure yeah man i think i've asked everything i wanted to ask what about you john i mean i could spend another three hours talking about this stuff that's for sure but no i'm uh i'm good man that's uh that's phenomenal information and incredible insight um I just, I mean, thanks a lot for coming on, first of all, and second of all, for just sharing your thoughts about this stuff. I mean, it, it's, it, it comes from a place where, you know, you, you've got just what you do at PFF. I mean, obviously, you know, that you're, you're able to look at these things, you know, players and plays and coaches and, you know, schemes and everything from a, you know, a really educated point. And it's just, it's just to listen to it is really helpful. So I definitely appreciate it. I know the listeners will. So really, thank you a lot for coming on, Brendan. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. It was it was fun. It's always good to talk Browns, and um, I'm willing to come on whenever. So just hit me up. It's a good time. Take care, guys. Yeah, All right, awesome. Thanks so much.